feels like you can't. Oh, good, you can, you can. Um, good evening, uh, my name's Louise, I'm on the staff team here. Um, and to start this evening, I'd like to take you back uh, to my final year at university. I think it was like maybe 2019 or something like that, I can't really remember. But anyway, I finished writing my dissertation um, at my parents' house in Devon. I'd worked like kind of hard on it. Um, but anyway, I was very happy that it was finished and it had frankly taken up too much of my Christmas holiday, so I'm like, great, it's time to print it out. It's time to get it ready to be bound and to be handed in. And it's 53 pages, by the way. So I press print, and um, out it comes from my dad's printer at home. I come back a bit later expecting 53 pages of wonderful academic excellence, or at least close to that, you know, um, that I can hand in when I get back to Winchester. But that's actually not what I found. Instead of printing it on normal printer paper, I'd actually managed to print my 53-page dissertation onto 53 pages of sticky labels. <laughs> <laughs> There are some pictures that are going to come up on the screen to actually prove that this is real. I didn't actually just make this up for this sermon. Um, it did happen. 53 pages of work on 53 pages of sticky labels because that's what my dad had been printing. That's my sister wearing my dissertation as 53 sticky labels. See, he'd been, my dad had been printing uh, on some sticky labels beforehand and I clearly didn't check the print. This is my Instagram story at the time. Now, my little mishap meant that there are now 636 stickers available that together make up my entire dissertation, um, which, of course, as you can see, we had lots of fun with in my house, and it made for some great Instagram content. Uh, but fundamentally, this version of what was previously my pretty good, important and meaningful dissertation was now useless, pointless, and was definitely not able to fulfill its initial purpose, to be handed in to an academic institute, to a professor who was able to determine my grade from my work, unless he wanted to wear it, like my sister, of course. I'd also wasted 53 pages of my dad's sticky labels, so Phil, on the live stream, I'm so sorry. Um, I'll give you them back sometime. Anyway, uh, this little story just came to my mind as I read this passage while I was preparing for this evening, my sticky label mishap. As the church in Corinth, as they took the Lord's Supper, something good, something important, something meaningful, and they managed to turn it into something that becomes unrecognizable from its initial purpose, kind of like my dissertation became nothing to do with what it was meant to be, I couldn't hand it in like that. It was pointless. Paul declares to the Corinthians that when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. What they're doing is unrecognizable from its initial purpose. Some of the elements, they remain the same. There's still bread and there's still wine being consumed at some level or a high level, as we read in the passage. But the way that communion is being executed means that it's completely obsolete. Just like my unfortunate dissertation, their version of the Lord's Supper is useless and pointless, so much so that Paul writes that their meetings do more harm than good, and that in regards to this meal, he has no praise for them. Perhaps that feels quite harsh from Paul. 
But I'd argue that he challenges them because he knows what's at stake. He knows what difference a divine encounter with Jesus will make. If we think back to the story of Paul's life, one that was driven by a hate for Christians and a desire for the persecution of them, as that life changed to one where he loved and he followed Jesus Christ no matter the cost, as he devotes his life to pointing humanity to the cross and to the forgiveness and freedom that it offers all people, he knows what's at stake in a divine encounter with Jesus. That divine encounter on the road to Damascus where Paul meets Jesus, it changes Paul's life. And it also changes his eternity. And in this letter, he encourages this church that he planted and that he loves to pursue divine encounters with the person of Jesus by both living for Jesus in holiness and by gathering for him in fellowship to live for him in holiness and to gather for him in fellowship. And this Corinthian church that Paul planted is struggling to do both of those things, to live in godly holiness and in godly fellowship. The culture of the city of Corinth, wealth-focused, sex-obsessed and spiritually confused, is seeping into the culture of the church. And one of the ways that we see that happening is how communion has changed from what Jesus commanded and intended it to be compared to the way the church in Corinth are going about it. At that meal before Jesus died that communion is all about, he gathered his disciples and he taught them how to take part in this shared meal of communion. He taught them, we know how to do it. This meal of communion that looks to the cross And Jesus uses familiar yet symbolic elements of the meal. They were there celebrating Passover, the festival remembering God bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land in the Old Testament. He uses the bread representing the unleavened bread, which didn't have time to rise as the Israelites fled the Egyptians and the wine to represent the blood that the Israelites painted on their door so that they were spared from the angel of death and instead it would pass over their houses, leaving them alive. Jesus uses these familiar yet symbolic elements. He uses the bread and the cup at the first of the Lord's suppers. And through that, Jesus points to a new way for all people to experience redemption through his future death, where through his body and his blood, we can go from being in slavery to sin to being forgiven and entering a promised land that for us is eternal and given to us through his sacrifice on the cross. Hearing that, do you maybe think it's time to get excited about communion? That we're not gathering to remember just historical events, but we're also celebrating something so real that Jesus taught us to do and told us to do. We're celebrating something so life-changing, but actually world-changing, as it sends us out to love people outside of this building. When it becomes life-changing and when it becomes world-changing is when Jesus is put at the center of it again. 
One of the commentaries I read about this passage said something really beautiful about the way that we remember Jesus' death through taking bread and wine, and I'd love to share it with you. It said, remembering isn't recalling facts. It's a participation in spiritual realities. At the Lord's table, we do not walk around a monument and admire it. We have fellowship with a living saviour as our hearts reach out by faith. We're not walking around an artifact. We have fellowship with a living saviour. And so here's the challenge. I wonder if we take communion for granted. Perhaps it feels irrelevant or boring or too traditional. You know, insert other adjective here. Maybe it doesn't feel like we're having fellowship with a living saviour, and it does feel like we're just recalling historical facts. I believe God wants to change that in our hearts tonight and every day. Maybe we take it for granted. The Corinthians were certainly taking it for granted. And even though maybe we don't come to the table drunk, which would be hard to do with non-alcoholic wine and tiny, tiny cups. Maybe we don't come to the table drunk, but what if we too have our own issues as we come to the table? What if we put other things in the centre except for Jesus? And what if tonight God wants us to put Jesus in that centre again, to engage in this meal in a new way that allows us to both remember and participate in the story of the gospel? In his letter, Paul is speaking into a church that is both divided and dishonouring. They're divided and dishonouring. He's speaking into a church that is celebrating a shared meal completely separately, where food is distributed unfairly, where the rich win every time and the poor lose every time, where people are filled with selfishness and greed as they receive the gifts of Jesus Christ. There's dishonor in how people treat the body of Christ as the poor are humiliated. And there's also dishonor in how people receive the gifts of communion. This doesn't look like the kingdom of God. It certainly doesn't look like the communion that Jesus calls us to take part in, where the body of Christ come together to share equally in a meal which leads them to repentance. This meal doesn't look the way it's meant to be. It's meant to be a meal that causes them to turn around from sin and face Jesus again. But they're stuck in the sin. It's meant to be a meal that draws them into intimacy with their saviour as they give thanks for what he's done. But they're selfish and they're greedy. How do we get where Jesus wants this meal to be? How do we reposition ourselves tonight to receive the gifts of communion as the body of Christ that was intended? I believe that it's a matter of the heart. Where are our hearts as we come to communion? Paul asks the Corinthians to examine their hearts. As we look back to the death of Jesus, we also look within ourselves and we confess. At Wildfires, they talked a lot about confession, um, and 
I've been thinking quite a lot about that after the, after the wildfires and in the last couple of days. We look within ourselves and we confess. Where have we let something else take the top spot? Where have we believed the lies of the enemy? Where have we acted with another motivation other than love? Communion allows us to carve out the space to confess and to reposition ourselves towards Jesus. Examining ourselves is a good thing, and that is the heart posture in which to enter and take part in the Lord's Supper. With an equal measure of reverence and joy for our King and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul says that eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner, still full of bitterness or hatred, greed or whatever sin we're carrying, to approach the table in that way and to take the bread and drink the cup in that unworthy manner is actually a sin in itself. That might feel like bad news, but I believe It's good news that actually the good news is that God wants to deal with that sin before we share in communion. In the times of quiet reflection, as we sing and as we pray, that's time to get right with God. Something that we can't do ourselves, but actually something he is very, very good at. As we bring all of who we are before God, we confess We say, yeah, I've screwed up. We repent. We do what we can to reconcile those broken relationships with the help of the Spirit. And then we share in the bread and in the cup. And through that, we then turn from division and dishonor to unity and honor. Maybe there's a temptation to avoid examination of the heart. Because you know once you start, you'll count yourself out from communion because you think, I'm too sinful. As I confess my sins, I just realize there's all this mess in me. That's a huge lie. It's a huge lie that examination should turn you away from the table. It's a lie that looking within yourself should then turn you away from Jesus. If it's pushing us away, then we are believing the lies of the enemy, the lies that say God isn't powerful enough to overcome our sin, that God doesn't love us enough to come and seek us out and bring us home, that Jesus' death wasn't sufficient for our forgiveness. In fact, the opposite is true. Examination should lead us back to God to what Jesus did. That's the reason he did it, is because we have that mess in our lives. Jesus wouldn't call us to repent and be baptized if the confession of sin in repentance didn't lead to baptism and a life walking with Jesus. He knows us. He knows we're not perfect. And as we realize that, we get drawn back to him. The truth is that God is powerful enough to overcome sin, that God loves you so much that he'll come out and he'll seek you and he will bring you home. The truth is that Jesus' death is 100% completely, totally sufficient for your forgiveness. 
And so I pray that tonight, examination of our hearts, both in and out of a communion context, draws us into deeper intimacy with the Father. I pray that as we receive the gifts of bread and wine tonight, and as we remember the body and blood of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and his resurrection to conquer death and looking to Jesus coming again, that we would have that divine encounter with our Lord. Maybe that's small, maybe that's huge, but I pray that as we take those gifts, we would know that that's a space where we can meet with Jesus. I pray that as we give communion the value Jesus first placed on it, that we can come with joy and with reverence, with clean hearts that are both forgiven and free and ready to be sent out to love all people. And lastly, I pray that through hearing the story of our faith in Jesus, through the liturgy, through the words that are spoken, and through sharing that meal as the body of Christ, we actually share the body of Christ as the body of Christ. That's incredible. I pray that through that, we would again understand that we do this, as weird as it might seem sometimes, we do all this in the words of Jesus, in remembrance of me. We take it to remember Jesus and the story of what he's done for you and for me and for all the people that you meet. So I would love to pray for us uh, as we yeah, come to our time of communion, which Simon will lead us through slowly and we'll hear that story of our faith and it will be up on the screens and I just um, encourage us to engage in that tonight, uh, perhaps as if it was the first time, and see what God wants to do. So thank you that we are able to receive this meal, that we're able to receive the meal of your body and your blood as your body. Thank you uh, for the body of Christ. Thank you for all of us that make up the body of Christ here um, and globally. And God, as we receive the gifts uh, of communion, uh, God, take us back to that first communion. Help us to enter into the story, to remember and to participate um, in the story of your redemption and your forgiveness and your love for us. Amen. Amen.